0: Tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Good evening, everybody, and a special hello to the podcast subscribers. If you've downloaded, hello! And thank you very much. You've been brilliant over the years. Pete Shelley died. Pete Shelley of the Buzzcocks. It was only a few months ago we did a review of their debut album with uh, Grant Smithies and myself. We respun it. Um, that's available on the front page on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. We've kind of repackaged it, if you like, and it's there for you to have a listen to. It was great fun. And I perform a magic trick. I turn the Buzzcocks into the Smiths. I'll play that to you now. Okay, that's the famous song uh, from the Buzzcocks. You just slow it down. It's the Smiths. Have a listen. Yeah, come on, that's bang on, isn't it? Yeah, that's the Smiths. Okay, um, another sad death this week. Jeff Murphy, his life and works as a film director, great New Zealander. We'll discuss with James Crute along with um, Fahrenheit 119, which is the new movie by Michael Moore on Trumpology. You're tuned in.
1: You're tuned in.
0: To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. Here he is, James Crute. Hello, James. G'day, Graham. How are you? I'm great, and actually uh, all the better for the lovely article you wrote. Thank you very much. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. It has been an honour and a privilege as we have uh, gone together over the years. Yeah, likewise. Next week, we'll stuff the movies. We'll just talk about (laughs) football superb why not okay uh we still have a job to do yes we do um now let's celebrate and salute now the late jeff murphy in his day He, along with Roger Donaldson, they were the ducks' guts in New Zealand cinema, weren't they? They were. It was that fertile period, I guess, end of 70s, early
2: 80s, where New Zealand cinema kind of really made its first mark, didn't it? And Murphy had a sort of trio of movies that I think first and foremost made an impact at home, but then sort of, you know, as they winded their way, Hollywood sort of stood up and took notice. So, I mean, the three movies that, of course, he's most remembered for... have to be goodbye pork pie which of course was one of the most successful kiwi movies of all time and couldn't be more kiwi in fact Mm. it's funny i got to talk to john barnett during the week the legendary sort of screen producer for both you know screens large and small and he was saying if they'd made it a few months later it would have been such a different kind of movie really because of course well it came out just before the springbok tour Uh and so they were able to have these kind of nice but inept cops Now, you wouldn't have been able to do that portrayal six months later, could you? Because the cops were were these polarising figures around the nation because of the way they handled the protesters and things.
0: Yep, the Red Squad, the Riot Gear and the Battleship Grey Cars. They were miserable.
2: That's right, whereas, of course, they were, well, you know, he might have got the inspiration from the Blues Brothers,
0: really. You know, this road movie where, you know, cops were simply there to look silly and smash cars. Yeah, oh, literally. I think I'm going to complain at a funeral. I always thought it was a bit clunky. (laughs) Am I the only one?
2: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, it's very... That is the nature of those kind of road movies, aren't they? Yeah, I suppose we, we have, so. Like it's place to place. And, and, but they physically made it, you know,
0: from Kaitaia to Bluff sort yeah. of thing, didn't they? Yeah. Cannonball Run, that sort of thing. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Those are quite mm. good too. Yeah, exactly. But, and
2: yeah. then, of course, he made Utu, which was you know, a terrific yeah, uh, yeah. Maori-orientated period drama. You know, the great Anzac Wallace, uh, terrific performance. He had this knack of finding... Actors that we didn't really know about, or Bruno
1: Lawrence. (laughs) (laughs) Of course,
2: course, The Quiet Earth is the movie that uh, he and Bruno made together, uh, you know, which sticks in the mirror. And that was an amazing piece of sci fi. And that really kind of got the Americans excited about what this guy could do. And it was his ability to do things on the smell of an oily rag and come up with these amazing special effects for no money that kind of, you know, I guess he was the forerunner to Peter Jackson in that way, but of course, we didn't have the industry to be able to cope with such things, so he went to Hollywood, and he spent, what, about a decade there, so Young Guns 2, Free Jack with... Um, Mick Jagger in it um, Under Siege 2 with Stephen Seagal Fortress 2, they so made an awful lot of you know, sequels if you like Ian Donaldson teamed up on Dante's Peak he was the second unit director for Roger there, mm. and then of course he kind of got lured back and it was Peter Jackson's second unit director on the Lord of the Rings movies Right,
0: yeah, so yeah, an amazing career when you think about it
2: Absolutely, and of course, even before that, he was the director of Dag Day Afternoon, the quite brilliant
0: cinematic short for Fred Dagg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good on him. And uh, he was who was he married to? The famous woman? Oh well,
2: he had about three oh, marriages did he? in total, but Mariana Mita. Oh, uh, right, of course. Right who and, and and ironically their son has just produced a documentary about his mum that's gonna screen at the Sundance Film Festival.
0: Oh well that'll be a lovely sort of salute even for Jeff. Yeah I think it is. Hmm yeah. I think it's very cool. Okay. Your favorite movie of his? Oh, it has to be The Quiet Earth. Yeah. I think there's just
2: something about it. And it's the ultimate Bruno performance, isn't it? And he, he was in a lot of great movies in that time, Smash Palace. Um, but, yeah, probably has to be that.
0: Yeah. Um, what was the deal with Quiet Earth? For those that uh, weren't alive then, um, what, what, you know, New Zealand's not famous for doing sci-fi. And post-apocalyptic sci-fi yeah, as well, of yeah. course. So this was,
2: I guess, in a way, it was a bit like the Triffids. You know, some sort of science experiment goes wrong. Mm. Guy wakes up, thinks he's the only person left on Earth, yeah. uh, and then uh, it gradually discovers what's gone on. Some experiment has gone terrible, and he realizes everything is unstable. And it, it's a, in a lot of ways, it's a very small, intimate kind of story. You know, you don't really see much of the global scale, and everyone hoped that there would have. Been a sequel and stuff, particularly in America. They're mm. absolutely convinced there should have been. Um, uh, yeah, and um, it's—I don't know. There's just something about it.
0: Yeah, something quite nice and brooding about it.
2: Uh, yeah, I think I think it's also that he that the main character doesn't take those kind of expected paths. Yeah. Y- you know, you think of um chelton heston or will smith in the i am legend movies or whatever um or what was it called the omega man i think it might have been in the heston one and 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 they kind of do you know it's all fairly predictable but you know here bruno gets dressed up in a dress and (laughs) starts singing to himself
0: and goes (laughs) quietly mad okay or uh, quietly liberated well Uh, i think that's it that's a good point Yeah. yeah All right, hats off to uh, a career in cinema well lived, Jeff Murphy. Uh, Let's move on to Michael Moore. I wonder how history will view him. We've got a trailer here that's that same drummer in the background banging with everything that they do in these goddamn trailers. Anyway, here it is. It was severely edited down to leave out the rhythm section from Guns N' Roses. How the f*** did this
2: happen? I hate some of these people, but I'd never kill
3: them. Try to impeach you, just try it. You will have a spasm of violence in this country like
0: you've never seen. And I don't give a who you are. I'll fight you in the damn street right now.
1: Okay, um, um, how the did this happen?
0: The American dream is dead. Stop resisting. All right, Uh, no guesses for what it's about. The election of Donald Trump. Trump is far too easy, low-hanging fruit for most people. But, Michael Moore, he should have first dibs at this sort of low-hanging fruit, shouldn't he? He was the man
2: that predicted the election. Yes. Famously. And, of course, even produced a documentary just before it, warning us that this was... Very likely to happen. So you know he comes to this with a certain amount of baggage. It has to be said, but uh, from the position of being able to say, well, I told you this was going to happen, and 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 now we can look back and I can tell you exactly how it happened. Uh, you know, it, it's got the usual. Michael Moore's stylistic tics. You know, he, the, the random people he blames. He doesn't think it was the Russians. He doesn't think it was um, James, what's-his-name. Mm. Um, he thinks it was Gwen Stefani to blame. What? <laughs> All because she, Trump discovered she got paid more than he did for The Apprentice. She got paid more for being a judge on The Voice. When he discovered that, he got so pissed off that he decided he would stage a fake presidential announcement... In order to show just what kind of popularity he had in comparison to Gwen Stefani, and that said, NBC should pay them more money.
0: It's you know, it's like a malevolent Chancey Gardner from Being There. Yeah, isn't it's, it? it? He's yep. he's kind of dreamt, daydreamed his way into this. You could tell when he won the election that he didn't expect to win it, because he walked out there to the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want. Uh, What was it? He
2: described it, uh, uh, Moore describes it as the strangest perp walk in history. Uh,
0: Yeah, I what? I've done it. I must be a genius. And the fact that it happened at like 2.24 in the morning is even more bizarre, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And, And one of the reasons he won was Hillary Clinton. She didn't even show up to thank her supporters on that evening.
2: Yeah. Look, I think that's it. And and you know, there's some great footage of this, the you know the day before the start of the day, Ooh. the early part of the evening, right. and then everything turning, and just and completely turning on its head. I mean, you know, it, it, while this is not a pro-Trump documentary, it's a. Anti-equal-opportunist thing between the Republicans, Trump, and, and, and let's say the Republicans and Trump are two separate parties here. Yeah. The Republicans, Trump, and the Democrats. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, Moore has a certain history. He believed that Hillary should never have been the Democratic nom- nominee. That Bernie Sanders had rightfully won, and then somebody fiddled the books. Yep. Uh, in order to make it, he's always supported the little guy if you like he
0: was a Ralph Nader supporter wasn't he yeah I I can I can um, have plenty of disagreements with Michael Moore about a few things but I think he's bang on on this yeah
2: look and it is also a documentary that's kind of a bit scattershot it's all over the place it's not just about Trump and some of his terrible behaviour. There is some clever uh, things where he uses uh, footage of Hitler, but Trump speeches. Oh type, right, right, and draws and draws quite an interesting parallel between, you know, the the election of Hitler and um, his rise to power and his uh, holding on to power, regardless of you know what what needed to be done in order to do it. Um, th- there's some you know quite disturbing parallels in terms of that. But he also, there's um, sort of he talks to the uh, students from the Parklands shooting. Uh, there's bits about uh, Trump's behaviour towards his daughter. Um, one of the most interesting things, though, and I think from a New Zealand perspective I found it quite interesting, was Flint. Uh, you know, Michael Moore's hometown of Flint, Michigan. Now, mm. the governor of Michigan is a guy who used to be the owner of, I think it was Gateway Computers back in the 80s, and so he he managed to get himself into power a few years ago, then decided he built build the second pipeline
0: from Lake Huron to Flint, Michigan. The forgotten lake is Huron. No one ever mentions Huron. Well, they've mentioned a lot in this. Good
2: one. So in order to do that, to help his business mates and have a pipeline that was owned, you know, not by uh, public interests, he he switched the water uh, of the townsfolk of Flint, Michigan, predominantly a black uh, city, uh, switched it to... Um, water from the Flint River, which is one of the most highly polluted rivers in the world, people right. started getting sick. He refused to uh, acknowledge that this was the case. Uh, then he, um, then General Motors started complaining that the water from the Flint River was corroding the auto parts. Good so he job. switched them to the pipeline, but not anybody else.
0: Oh. Right, that is Michael Moore bullseye. He also sacked. He also sacked a whole lot of the mayors
2: of Michigan uh, under the auspices of a, of a state of emergency. And mm. this is where my uh, Christchurch earthquake parallels come in, um, so that he could, um, you know, have more control over things. Oh right, okay. All but right. Of of I, the <laughs> most, I think the most damning moment, and the moment where you realise that this isn't. Uh, necessarily a, basically an anti-Trump movie, is the moment where Obama comes to town and everyone in Flint is determined that Obama will come and sort this mess out. This is at the end of his presidency. Mm. He doesn't.
0: He just comes to drink the
2: water and do a fluffy PR
0: thing. OK. All right. Um, now, we haven't even said what it's called. Amusingly titled Fahrenheit 11-9 uh, instead of 9-11. Yeah, he's lucky in terms of dates. Yeah. He? Yeah. yeah, he is. The date uh, Was that the date he was elected? or what? It was. Yeah. November 9. Oh, Funny, that. Fun. Out. Okay. Um, yeah, very handy for him. And also handy was that he was on the Roseanne Barr show, we're talking Michael Moore, with Donald Trump. And this happens.
1: Uh, my
0: next guest is kind of the polar, philosophical polar opposite of Donald Trump, I think, but maybe not. We'll find out. His first film was the classic documentary, Roger and Me, which was so great. Please welcome my blue-collar
1: <laughs> panelist, Michael Moore. Thank
2: you. Terrific, I tell you, I loved what he did. If I was Roger, I wouldn't have liked it, but I I enjoyed it. I hope he never does one on me, though.
0: (laughs) How portentous! I hope he never does a documentary on me. It's been done, but how different positions they are in today.
2: Yeah, that's a funny thing, isn't it?
0: Look, you know. There's plenty of water still to go under the bridge, that's for sure, isn't there? Yeah. Okay, I just wanted to know one thing about Fahrenheit 11.9 by Michael Moore. Does it suffer from mission shift? Uh, some of these things can because they just haven't got enough meat on the bone for one angle uh, and they go way over there and talk about something else.
2: It- yeah, I think I think there is a little bit of that but I think it depends on when you look at the overall picture. I mean, you know, as he so politely said uh, in your trailer you had at the start um, you know, it's all about how the, did this happen but it's also about how things could go even more wrong and why we should be worried. So the Flint water thing is an example of um, you know, what can happen if some sort of emergency powers are declared um, and as he points out in the end, that's how Hitler did it you know, when the Reichstag burnt he suddenly acquired all these extra powers and Trump, as he has found various bits of footage more has, um, has said a number of times oh, you know, why, why why do I only need to be here for 8 years?
0: Oh really? Yes. Oh, I see. But then, see, I'm more more of the opinion that he's an idiot and we've got a cartoon uh, president. We'll just have to put up with him until the credits run. Uh, Yeah. Oh, well. But if he can change, you know, if he's found a way of changing the game. Oh, yeah. He'll be as loved as FDR.
2: (laughs) And, of of course, yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, and, And just quickly, the other thing that he raises, you know, as something like that, it was that... Um, Hawaii Missile uh, Alert Test or whatever. Oh, yes. Which went so horribly wrong in January or whatever, you Uh, know, with the, this is not a drill. Right. And he takes a
0: couple of those... All right, yes, you're right. I'm just uh, praying, hoping and praying. Nothing goes bang and I can uh, just ignore him for the yeah, most part. That would be a wonderful. Thing. It would be wonderful. James, you're a good man. Thank you very, no very way. much. Coming up, Max Cryer, a good man too. Yes, Santa Claus and Coca-Cola. What is the myth? What is the reality? And, James, do you know why anyone would say cotton on? You know, when you're cotton on to something, where the hell is the cotton? Oh, good question. Very uh, good. Companies even made a, a clothing business out of that. <laughs> okay, James, thank you very much. Talk next week. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace. Words Max Cryer, lovely to see you again for another instalment of Words, Their Origin and Meaning. And the lies attached to them in the first case. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yes. Big lies. Received knowledge is what it's called, isn't it? No, it's called a lie. Oh, well, received knowledge is (laughs) when you've got something everyone thinks is true, but the origin has been lost and the origin was a lie.
3: Well, in this particular case, there is what we could call an untruth, Uh because there are people who believe that what they were told is true, but the origin is not lost, as I'm about to reveal. Very good, Max. Shall we go? Off you go. Oh, Well, Santa Claus wearing red. Now, the other day I read in a newspaper, which shall remain nameless, someone writing that Santa Claus dressed in red was created by the firm which makes Coca-Cola. Now, this is so appallingly untrue that I thought we'd have a look at Santa and the colour red and some of the lies told about him. Well, the name Santa Claus, it's a mash-up caused by a newspaper reporter who was watching the annual Dutch Parade of Saint Nicholas in New York when it was still called New Amsterdam, and the reporter asked the Dutch man next to him, who was this man dressed as a bishop riding past them on a white horse? And the man next to him answered in Dutch, Sinterklaas, which the reporter wrote down as Santa Claus, and the vast commercial merchandising industry was born. Now, Santa simmered away on the back burner for many years without showing any sign of being useful in promoting selling like he is now. But in 1821, a poem booklet was published with two very influential gradients the name, Santa Claus, and he was showing a coat wearing red. 1821, please note. Now, that red showed from time to time after that. But Coca-Cola wasn't invented until 40 years after, and their advertising didn't put Sandra in red till 1931, which was over 100 years since he'd first been seen in red, so it's a load of rubbish. Now, the other extraordinary influence was the poem, 1823, and this has a strong New Zealand connection. The poem began, "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. It was published anonymously, no name. But some bright spark said that it looked like it might have been written by Clement Moore. Now, that guess rocketed around the world for years, gradually removing the words might have been and just announcing that it had been written by Clement Moore, which the same newspaper said the same thing when it said that Coca-Cola put Santa Claus in red. Two major lies. However... An academic in New Zealand took issue with these irresponsible writers who left off the words might have been and were telling a lie. So in 2016, McDonnell Jackson, Professor Emeritus of English at Auckland University, caused international alertness with his book, Who Wrote the Night Before Christmas? An examination of the poem, its rhythm, syllable variance, attributive adjective, quirks of style. Prof Mac Jackson took on the lazy ones who have assumed for 190 years that the poem, The Night Before Christmas, was written by Clement Moore just because one person said it might have been. No, says Mac Jackson. The poem's style, syllable count, word patterns and vocabulary choice define it as written by Henry Livingston. But meticulous, minute comparisons of additional matters such as discriminatory words and framing and patterns had alerted him, Jackson, that the anonymous poem was far more likely to have been written by Henry Livingstone, and this caused a stir. Major international news links like CBC had to find out where New Zealand was so they could speak to Professor Mac Jackson. He remained completely calm and completely convincing. So thumbs on noses whoever said coca-cola invented red for santa claus it's a blatant lie and thumbs on nose to people who said that clement moore wrote the night before christmas thumbs up and congratulations to professor mac jackson who revealed that clement moore didn't invent santa claus henry livingston did Right. Uh, (coughs) Pardon me.
0: Um, Coca-Cola did appropriate Santa, though, for advertising purposes.
3: They had nothing to do with Santa. They they weren't invented. Coca-Cola wasn't invented when Santa Claus was
0: riding high. But they appropriated the image of Santa Claus for advertising. everybody else did too. Look around. Open your paper. Look down the street. Yeah, I didn't say nobody else did, but they did.
3: They used him. You can't say appropriated. They used him. It's the same thing, isn't it? And they dressed him in red nearly 100 years after after somebody else had invented
0: it. Yeah, okay. It sold a few Coke cans. All right, Uh, point blank, a listener has asked. um, Why? We kind of know what it means, don't we? At point blank blank
3: range, couldn't get closer. (laughs) Well, it has a couple of shades of meaning. Um, It's often heard to describe an explicit way of speaking about something, maybe a problem or something controversial, and an opinion will be expressed in a blunt, direct manner. Without softening the speech or using subtlety, the origin of the term point blank goes back to the old terminology of archery in ancient French. Back then, archery targets were usually white. Point was used as the verb, and blank actually was originally blanc, French for white. So point blank in French meant pointing at the target. And that carried the attached meaning of too close to miss. Now, the term has been seen in print as early as 1579. Uh, An English mathematician called Thomas Diggers had an arithmetical military treatise, and he wrote about a certain shot fired from close to its target. Line, he wrote, quotes, The bullet fired at point-blank range hit him in the middle of the back. But although the term comes from shooting at targets, it's often used often used in a symbolic way to describe something which is well focused direct, without explanation for instance the accused refuses point blank to be photographed or give interviews now some bright spark put together a list of English words which are seen to be the equivalent of the French term point blank and those scholars say that apart from archery the expression means blunt direct, straightforward frank, candid forthright, open, explicit, unambiguous, unmistakable, plain, clear-cut, well-defined, positive, certain, decisive, categorical, outright and downright. And that whole list of things comes from just the arrow going towards the target. Ah. All right,
0: there's a lot more than I thought there from the world of archery, although one shouldn't uh, be surprised.
3: Archery's been around for a long time. Well, it's not actually- uh, Even the uh, central have some. Archery provided this, the original impetus but all that other stuff I mentioned—clear-cut, well-defined, positive, certain—that was all added afterwards mm, to the oh image, image yeah. of the arrow going to no, the target. right,
0: right, right, right.
3: Okay. Uh, now somebody has asked.
0: I've never heard of this. May the road rise with you? What does this mean?
3: Well, it's—it's it's a hard. Or one. What was the question? Uh, well where does it come from was the question where where do you get may the road rise with you um it's actually highly recognizable depending on who you are and where you are um it's made famous by its use in Ireland It's popular in songs um stories Uh, There are variations in the word, but the most famous version says, May the road rise with you, may the wind always be at your back, may the sun shine warm upon your face, may the rain fall softly on your fields, until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. And that is not unknown to uh, many people of Irish extraction. Now the background appears that although the Irish version is widely known, the concept is Jewish. Early Christian clerics in Ireland frequently took inspiration from Hebrew sources, and with that wonderful Irish gift for language, they were able to restate and reinform that which inspired them in a what I would call a fluid Irish style. Now, seeking the background to May the Road Rise leads to the belief that it comes basically from the Book of Isaiah. In the Bible, the first line, the road rising to meet you, can be seen to connect with Isaiah chapter forty nine. Quote, I will turn my mountains into a road and my highways will be raised up. And then there's also chapter forty, the famous opening to the Messiah by Handel. Every valley shall be exalted and the rough places plain both of which mean the roadways will rise and will be raised above the rough places. Then you look at Isaiah chapter 49 and you find, Neither shall the heat nor sun smite them, for he shall lead them even to springs of water. Move to chapter 55 and read, For as the rain watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth and sprout, that can easily be read as, May the sun shine warm upon thy face and the rain upon thy fields. Chapter 49 also tells the word of God, quote, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands, which has the image of God holding you in the palm of his hand. So what I'm saying is all legend, supposition and research rather than absolute fact. But to answer the listener's question, careful examination does seem to fit into the belief that the Irish prayer comes from the Jewish-based material in the book of Isaiah, and that material has been lovingly recrafted into a mellifluous blessing, as only the Irish can do. A mellifluous blessing? mellifluous blessing. Wow, that's a cracker. Do you like that? What does a mellifluous mean?
0: Smoothly flowing and attractive. Oh, it even sounds smoothly flowing. It does, yes, it is, it? yes, you're quite right. Mellifluous. <laughs> mellifluous
3: Could a stream be mellifluous? Um, it would make a mellifluous sound if it was a, particular, a particularly quiet stream. Oh, okay. Two L's? Yes, you can use that, great Okay, thank you. you. Find, it, find a
0: place to use it. I have it. heard it, but if I had to put it in a sentence on the spot, I don't know if I
3: would have been able to use it. Appropriately. Someone, who knows, someone might say it about you. What? That your voice is mellifluous.
0: Oh, may the road rise with you, man. <laughs> <laughs> so basically it means all the best. Shall we move? No, we'll take a break. Oh, all right. Uh, and when we return, addressing cotton on. When you cotton on to something, it's like the penny drops. And what have cheeks got to do with being cheeky, you cheeky monkey? Weekend.
1: Variety. Wireless.
0: Max Cryer, Entertainer of the Year, 1975-ish. Ish. Ish. (laughs) Did you knock up two, so to speak? Yes, Variety Artist of the Year as well. Oh, Max, Max, Max. Uh, And now, um, is a scholar of the English language, words, their origin and phrases, and author of many books as well. Oh, we may as well get a plug in, Max. Oh, oh, how kind. For the books. Books,
3: all 17 of them. 17? Yes. Really? (laughs) Yes. What are they about, civil engineering and the Wairarapa? No, I didn't get round to that. Oh. No, I thought I'd better stick to that which I know, which is the structure of the English language. Okay. Mm.
0: Uh, Now, cotton on. I heard this the other day. Uh, someone said they'd cottoned on. No, it's actually in a cryptic crossword. Cotton on, meaning well, what? T- 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 to me, it means like the penny drops. Yes, um, yes, you finally get something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but where's the cotton, and why is it on?
3: Well, at all, <coughs> excuse me, it's actually quite complex. And it dates back to the. So mid- I go for a pie? Oh, for what? Oh. how long is this going to take?
0: <laughs> what are you talking about? I just thought I could go and come back. No, I want to hear the
3: answer. Go for it. Oh, well, we're, we're going back to the, uh, to the 1600s. We're going back to the 1600s. There was a variation you see in history over the spelling of the word cotton. We spell cotton with O-N at the end, but in early times, it was cotton with E-N in the end. So there was mild confusion when the changes started to come. And in the 1600s, the term cotton, along with cotton up meant making friendly advances. Cotton up to. Many uses of this term cottoning occur in settings of courtship and affection. You'll find it in William Congreve in the play Love for Love, 1695. Quote, I love to see him hug and cotton together like down upon a thistle. Now, that's cotton with an E-N on the end. Now... who um, wrote that? Uh, William Congreve.
1: Huh.
3: Now, the theory is that most... Sorry, moist. <laughs> the theory is that moist cotton does stick to things.
0: Ah, oh,
3: right. You wet a cotton ball, bu- uh, one of those cotton balls, throw it at a wall, it'll stick. Well, even more so in a factory making cotton where oh, there are small right. bits of it floating around. You know, the the, the the ladies, it used to be always ladies, who work there sort of by the end of the day are sort of covered with little white Little white specks of cotton. Well, their husbands come home completely black, covered in coal. Yes, exactly. So there is a sort of an an illusion that indicated moving of garments closer together in each to each other during a romantic advance. That was the sort of hint about cottoning on or cottoning up. Cotton fabric in early days was not as refined as we're accustomed to, so that slightly furry parts of the surface tended to stick to whatever brushed against it. So if one became, shall we say, friendly with a person in a short time, then it was compared to cotton fluff sticking onto things and in 1800 we spoke of cotton mills a minute ago and in 1800 cotton mills were starting to process raw cotton into fabric and it was widely known that little bits of fluff floated around and stuck to everyone who was there. So the meaning of the expression was reinforced by that, something which came within your horizon. I found a dictionary of slang for 1869 and it said cotton To like, to adhere to, or agree with a person, to cotton on to a person is to attach yourself to them, to stick to them as cotton would. Uh Aha! Do you get it? Yeah. So the expression cottoning on, as we now use it, derives from the meaning of attaching oneself to something. But besides sticking to you in friendship, it came to refer to your understanding and becoming attached to an idea. Uh, which you just said a minute ago, that yeah. you cotton on to something. And you might not have encountered this idea before, but you gradually cotton on. Now, this could have been coined in one of the major english speaking cotton-producing regions like India or USA, but wait for this. The expression cotton on to, meaning to understand an idea that's being presented, seems to have emerged in New Zealand and Australia. Mm. It's not widely known elsewhere. Oh, bless. It was published, for instance, in a Let's new- salute the Anzacs. New South Wales newspaper, March 1883. It reported on a local horse race, quote, A lot of backers then cottoned on to Sahara, who was a strong favorite. But my favorite is a New Zealand newspaper in eighteen ninety-three, which was referring to a game in Caerao, which is a sports club in Springvale near Wanganui. And the newspaper said quote, the Kaira forwards are just beginning to cotton on on to the passing game. Right. The forwards are just beginning to cotton on to the passing game. Mm -hmm. 1893 in New Zealand and not heard of outside Australasia. (laughs) So cotton on emerged in UK and America's southern states where much cotton was produced and cotton too is used with a slightly modified meaning as little sticking to like little bits of cotton but the term cotton on to cotton on to to grasp and understand we think may have evolved in australasia right well that's fabulous it's always interesting when New Zealanders travel overseas and they use a ex- New Zealand expression that mm. they think people will understand. Yeah. And they don't. It happens in reverse, of course. Americans come here and say something that we've got no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cotton on,
0: it's um, frequently used, to my memory anyway, um, in as much as how, uh, let's say something that was obvious to a lot of people and somebody else just didn't get it and then they finally cottoned on or maybe cottoned on to a conspiracy
3: Well, you heard it in a few years past when uh, iPads and computers became common in ordinary households and people who had no technological background had to learn what to do with a keyboard and then eventually also with a cell phone but they gradually cottoned on
0: right an example might be you know, when a conspiracy, if somebody is um, being kept out of the knowledge of a conspiracy and then they cotton on to yes, it, yes. Uh, like I suppose Julius Caesar in, <laughs> the, in the in the final 30 seconds of his life might have cottoned on that he wasn't particularly popular amongst the Senate. I think he might have, he yes. He might have. It was the, the, <laughs> the evidence is kind of obvious at that stage. Sometimes. Or that sh- Richard Nixon cottoned on that he couldn't actually reverse his argument out of the driveway and he had to, he had to resign. He cottoned
3: on that this is a no-win. Yes, well, that's that's how we use it. Hmm. Um, but we're going to move on to cheeky. All right. Because somebody wanted to know what have cheeks got to do with being cheeky? Yeah. This is a cute one, actually, because um, cheeky has an aura of impudence. It's been hanging around for 800 years, that word. But, well, why there's no 100% definite reason why there is supposition? Now, This makes sense. In earlier centuries, where class division was much more stringent than now, a person's attitude could sometimes be misconstrued if they stood firmly and face-on to someone older or someone of superior rank and spoke openly, which could sometimes be interpreted as being too bold. So, gradually a connotation grew, and the words cheek and lip plus the extended forms giving me cheek or giving me lip have developed from someone from the lower orders speaking to their master or their landlord in a manner which was out of kilter with the strong expectation of respect and restraint, which were the norm in those circumstances. Here, someone was not standing silently and respectfully, but facing up with their cheeks and giving out opinions with their lips, which developed into giving me cheek and giving me lip. That breaking of the social order must have developed from those circumstances a long time ago since the first dictionary definition of cheeky, meaning bold, impudent and insolent, appears in the Oxford Dictionary in 1859. Wow. At which stage people were rather cautious about speaking to the authorities, the nobles and the upper order. Oh, okay. Now today is an important day. 86 years ago today, wait for this, Graham. 86 years ago today, a New Zealand icon went on sale for the first time. It was called... Taranaki Gate. The New Zealand Woman's Weekly. Oh. And 7,000 copies... Is it the New Zealand Women's Weekly or New Zealand Woman's Weekly? Woman's, singular.
0: Tell John Key.
3: 7,000 copies were printed. No, it's Woman's with an apostrophe. <laughs> he couldn't do the apostrophe. Uh, they stroke. printed 7,000 copies and 86 years later the new issues are still there on the pile of shops each week this week's issue um 82,000 people can read Michelle Obama's report on the Obamas having marriage counselling, they can read how the mother of Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, will be having Christmas dinner with the Queen, and that Tammy Wells has been the advertising lady for briscoes for 30 years. Probably something to do with cellulite as
0: well. Oh, it's amazing This it, there is it is just still eternally popular, that absolutely. sort of stuff, isn't absolutely.
3: it? absolutely. Yeah. Marvellous. It's moved with the times. I mean, when you look at... Has the, it? Yes, you look at the covers that go back. I was columnist for the Women's Weekly for ten years. What did you write about? What? Television. Oh. Yeah. When television was sort of new and there were still columns about it. All oh, right. <laughs> yes. What is on this magical box? Yes,
0: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I'm going to add, as far as anniversaries go, something far more recent, but it certainly came as a shock to so many people. John Lennon was shot. And killed on December the 8th, 1980, um, by Mark David Chapman. It's funny when people get in a hell of a lot of trouble, um, you find out their middle names, don't you? It was probably just Mark Chapman until he murdered John Lennon, and then it was Mark David Chapman. Tell us the details. Like Lee Harvey Oswald. It would have been just Lee Oswald. Hmm. But the middle name comes in after he's got himself in just a bit of trouble. It happened in New York. John Wayne Gacy. It happened in New York? Yeah, just outside
3: his apartment. I, I remember being shown the place, sort of walking past the building and being shown. The, I, I wasn't there, but I have seen the place where he was killed. Yeah, and
0: it was something to do with Catcher in the Rye. He got this religious thing in his head, this Mark Chapman guy, and thought that um, John Lennon had to be shot. Uh, so, anyway, uh, that was the first Beetle down. george harrison after that but in commemoration of john lennon a little of Mark David chapman and appropriately i think some music when i got up that morning and dressed and put my scarf around my
2: neck and my black felt hat it was like i was going through a door i knew i was going to go through a door and i was leaving my past i was leaving what i was and going into a future of of uncertainty. I I did have the the gun with me, and I had the Catch in the Rye with me, and I had a piece of cardboard, and I used it to camouflage the shape of the gun in the pocket of my London file coat. I had the album with me too, the John Lennon album, I brought that with me as a reason for standing out there and being there. It was uh, a ruse. I really didn't want his signature, I, I wanted his life. And
0: I ended up taking both. A uniformed officer directed us to the Dakota. He says,
1: you guys better get up there. Uh, All hell broke loose. Somebody shot John Leonard. I saw another patrolman. He had a white male in custody. And this patrolman said to me that uh, I don't know what's going on. I think it's a robbery. There might be more inside. The people were milling around. They seemed to be in shock, in a state of shock. Some women were crying, but other people were just standing there, staring at the uh, entrance to the building. And at this point, we were ushered in up the stairs and shown to the, what I believed to be what was, at that time anyway, the superintendent's office. And uh, I saw a male, white, lying face down on a carpet in front of his desk. And as I approached him, an oriental woman said to me that, uh, that be very, very careful, he's very seriously wounded. We made the decision that he had to go to the hospital now to make any, to have any chance of survival. They brought out Lennon. He was he was limp. Um, he had blood coming outside of his mouth. Uh, he had his glasses on, and
0: there were maybe five or six uh, uh, police officers holding him, uh, carrying him back
3: seat of a car. And very quickly, Yoko was with him.
1: A stretcher was wheeled in. Six to eight police officers around, a trotting running back as fast as they could in, in, indoors. They wheeled it inside their room right behind me. The doctor ran in, some other medical people ran in, they pulled the curtain. One police officer stood next to another police officer and whispered, it's John Lennon. I had Mr. Lennon by his feet and my partner had him in his shoulder area and I think that someone else was assisting him on that end. I didn't know who he was. It had never dawned on me who this was. And my partner kind of said to me, uh, this is john lennon and i looked down and saw what growing up to me were beetle boots the uh the boot with the zipper up the side and uh it was at that moment i realized the uh the enormity of the situation john lennon has been shot dead by a gunman outside the block of flats where he lived in new york wnew wfm you're on the air how could somebody like John Lennon be killed? What kind of a country is this? I remember saying this before.
2: I remember saying this when John Kennedy was shot. I remember saying this when Martin Luther King was shot. I remember saying this when Bobby Kennedy was shot. This
1: is gonna get you. Gonna knock you the head. You better get yourself together. Gonna be dead. What in the world are you thinking now? Laughing in the face of love. What on earth you trying to do? It's up to you. Yeah, you. This is gonna get at you. Gonna look you by right the face. Better get, Better get yourself together, darling.